This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su-An. You're listening to our International Women's Day special brought to you by BMW. You can drive home the fully electric BMW iX from only 3,999 ringgit a month. So visit a BMW showroom or make a booking now at shop.bmw.com.my. Now on today's show, we'll be spotlighting cervical cancer, which is one of the most preventable cancers, both through HPV vaccinations and screening tests. This is a disease that could one day be history for the world, including Malaysia. But just how far away are we from that reality? So joining me to discuss this is a woman who has made this her mission, Professor Dr. Bu Yin Ling, consultant gynecological oncologist at University Malaya Medical Centre. And she is also the founder of Rose Foundation, a non-profit aimed at making cervical cancer screening accessible to all women. Thank you so much for joining me today, Prof Wu. Thank you for having me, Sue Anne. It's always lovely to have a conversation online with all of you in BFM. Happy to have you on today as always. And I'm going to start by first mentioning that you were recently um, awarded the 2023 Rachel Perline Award by the National Cancer Institute in the US for your work um, on cervical cancer through Program Rose. So congratulations on that, Prof. Thank you very much. I have a strong team uh, who believes in the vision. So thank you very much. Mm. And I mean, that will be my segue to talk to you um, a little bit first about, you know, your own career in medicine before we dive more into um, cervical cancer. I'm going to get you to take us back to, I guess, how it started for you. You know, was medicine something that you've always wanted to do? No, I, I'm also <laughs> the daughter of a very proud Asian parent, you know. Um, I... I I'm what you call a late bloomer. I've never uh, aspired or even thought that uh, medicine could be a career for me. I was a very happy-go-lucky child and um, spent a lot of time in the playground and academic was never something I focused on. So um, as as I grew older and got into it, um, I thought that I would do law because most of my friends Mm -hmm. uh, were going into that field. Another big aspect of why I never thought of medicine was the cost associated with it. I committed to doing A-levels mm. um, and not going into STPM, always taking the easy route, you know. <laughs> so at some point in time, my my, my dad had enough uh, savings and asked, um, would, would you consider medicine? And I said, it never occurred to me, but I, I made the decision to do medicine and it's it's a path that I have no regrets and I've thoroughly enjoyed. Mm. Now, I said that you are a gynecological oncologist, but you first started out by specialising in um, obstetrics and gynecology, right? So what was that decision like to first specialise in ONG and then to further subspecialise more? And maybe you could also share a bit about what the role of a gynecological oncologist is. Sure. So I think people always ask me why that specialty Mm -hmm. and I can attribute it to my teachers and mentors when I was in medical school. I had a group of um, consultants who were very interested in teaching when I was in Trinity College back in Dublin. And to to be part of the birth process was very exciting Mm. for me. And obstetrics and gynecology will really encompasses medicine, Mm -hmm. surgery, and looking at the beginnings up to the end of life. Um, gynae oncology was something I was very attracted to, even as a house officer, once again, 
because of uh, a, a consultant that I had the privilege of working under. So she primarily looked after patients with female cancers. Mm -hmm. And because I was a house officer with no family to go back to, I spent a significant amount of time in hospital. That was my first home <laughs> and my own home was my second home. And, and talking to patients and getting to know them and seeing through what they went through um, as they dealt with cancer under the care of someone who really looked after them both surgically and emotionally was something I aspired to. So at a very young age, uh, as a trainee, I knew that was something that I wanted to get into. Hmm. And I feel so like to answer you about yes. the specialty. So I know it's a mouthful for many people, gynecological oncologist. It basically means a gynecologist that looks after female cancers and the prevention of female mm. cancers is very important. So that's my that's my job mm. in a nutshell. And female cancers is such a um, it's such a difficult thing to talk about. I mean, cancers as a whole is still a, a big conversation to have, but female cancers in particular, right? Because you're talking about how it affects a woman's sense of um, herself, of her womanhood. Because you're talking about um, cancers that affect your reproductive system and and your fertility. And as a society, we're still very much tied to that concept of being a woman is being a mother. That's that's true, and and I think that's. Uh very important when it comes to care. Mm -hmm. I think women in our society in particular, uh, we are very much part of a sandwich generation. We keep families together. Mm -hmm. We look after young children and we look after our parents. And so to be struck by something um, at most of the time in our prime of our lives is also something very scary. And therefore, to prevent a cancer that that can affect most women mm -hmm. um, is something that we, we should strive for, particularly in our setting. Mm. So how did you get into working so specifically on cervical cancer? You know, why is that something that you continue to be passionate about? Serendipity and also, you know, my, my call in life, so to speak. No, I, after um, my general training as an obstetrician and gynecologist, um, I chose to do a PhD. Mm. Um, so I left clinical work for three years and to pursue a PhD in looking at human papilloma viruses and our human response, our, our immu immune system and how we deal with this very common infection. And at that stage, uh, the vaccines were just about to come on board and mm -hmm. sail because I started this process back in twin, uh, 2006. And um, screening was very much still about pap smear. So I spent a considerable time doing laboratory-based work, mm. um, understanding how our body deals with uh, HPV. So as I matured in my training and my research, it was natural for me to look into cervical cancer and how to prevent it. You must remember at my time, it was um, elimination of cervical cancer mm -hmm. was never something that I could ever imagine in my lifetime. Mm. So 10 years down the line, this was be within the reach of most countries. And that's why I'm so excited. And I, I see it as a, a calling or a, the stars aligning because I, I think we now are in a position to do something positive about it. 
Mm. So let's talk about the burden of cervical cancer here in Malaysia, right? Because, you know, based on the latest National Cancer Registry report, it's still the third most common cancer among women. Um, more than two-thirds of women are diagnosed in late stages. What are we struggling with when it comes to reducing that burden, considering that elimination is actually on the horizon for many countries? Screening, screening and screening. I, I, I think in our, our sort of culture, mm-hmm. in general, when you talk about all non-communicable diseases, we are in general quite frightened to go for screening because of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing that I've come to appreciate in um, most, more recently is that a lot of screening is done in hospitals or clinics where we generally think that when we are sick, we go in there and we've had not such positive experiences. So we are expecting people who are well to walk into an environment that they're quite frightened of Mm -hmm. to have a procedure done on a regular basis so that they don't fall ill. So naturally, many women do not screen and it's not in our lifestyle compared to, say, in the developed countries or even in our near neighbouring countries in Korea, where mm-hmm. I understand that women do not have uh, such fear or uncertainty to have screening done. Mm. Here, sometimes what you see, it's the, the, the willingness to rather not know, right, than to know and not deal with it. Yes, and that's the same with uh, breast cancer. You, you've talked about it before. We, mm-hmm. we know that there are effective methods, either through uh, self-breast examination or even through mammograms. But majority of us are still afraid. So that's the first step. We're afraid to screen. And after the screening, if there's any abnormal screening test, then it becomes even scarier for the woman to seek uh, follow-up care. Mm. And for uh, cervical cancer, the screening, uh, the main screening method here in Malaysia is to go for pap smears, right, Prof? And and that in itself is such a, it, it's such a daunting thing for many women to to go for. Yes. So for for your listeners here who who are not aware of this major paradigm shift in cervical cancer prevention, I mean, I want to bring back mm-hmm. the idea that cervical cancer is the only cancer we can eliminate in our lifetime today. Mm-hmm. And we, we have the tools. So no research needs to be done anymore. <laughs> we vaccinate our young and we screen by HPV testing as few as twice a lifetime. Mm. So we, we need to work as a society, as a healthcare professional, as a country to shift towards our uh, towards HPV testing and not persisting with our pap smears. Yesterday, I was uh, having a conversation about how screening is going in our, our neighbouring country, Thailand. Mm-hmm. Last year, they, they managed to screen 600,000 of their population with HPV testing. And this year, they're aiming for 5 million of their women. Wow. So the shift has been so rapid. So it is my hope that uh, women in Malaysia will start to be screened with a more effective method. And they don't need to actually have an uncomfortable speculum examination. Um, There's the option of having um, a swab done themselves, very much like the PCR test um, for COVID. Mm. 
On the show with me today is Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, consultant gynecological oncologist at University Malaya Medical Center and also the founder of Rose Foundation. This is our International Women's Day special brought to you by the fully electric BMW iX. We'll be right back, so keep it here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su, and you're listening to our International Women's Day special brought to you by the fully electric BMW iX. Now on the show with me today is Professor Dr. Wu Yin Ling, consultant gynecological oncologist at University Malaya Medical Center, talking to me about her career in medicine and women's health. And of course, we are also talking about cervical cancer, how it is one of the most preventable cancers um, that we know of. And as Prof said before the break, you know, it is one that many countries can eliminate one day. And Malaysia is, of course, part of that list. We want to get to that point where cervical cancer is a part of our history books. Now, before the break, Prof, you were talking about how you want that paradigm shift towards self-testings, right? To go from pap smears to PCR tests. And I guess that ties to why you started the Rose Foundation and Program Rose, which stands for Removing Obstacles to Cervical Screening. Now, take me back to what sparked this idea to tackle this aspect of cancer screening. Yeah, so I I'm a very I'm very much a hospital doctor, and I myself weren't aware of the the progress that they've made you towards using a swab, a simple mm. swab, to screen for cervical cancer. So I was at a meeting in 2017 where I met some of the Australians who have been championing using HPV tests and transitioning from pap smears to HPV tests in Australia. And the, this, you know, this is the life-changing moment where um, my friend now, who is a, who's a pathologist, said, do you know you can screen using a simple swab now? I looked puzzled. I said, it's, surely it's still in research no, no, no. It, it's available. It's, it's, uh, it's been confirmed to work. If a woman uses a swab and takes a low vaginal swab, it's as effective as a clinician taken sample. So, you know, being a surgeon and doctor, <laughs> you've got to be kidding, right? Sure, you can't tell me that a woman taking her own swab is as good as one that's taken by me and my mm. colleagues. I know the research. So as we looked into it, it is true, many studies were done um, to compare um, what is the effectiveness of or accuracy of a woman doing her own swab for, for HPV PCR testing. And that led to one thing to another. And, and Program Rose was very much thinking about a Malaysian setting, like how I alluded to earlier on that women, some women do not like going into hospitals or clinics for certain interventions. And so the idea of being able to bring a screening test to the community was an attractive one. And that's how Program Rose um, started. Mm. What um, and, and how does the program work, right? Because how do you even broach the subject with women? Because, um, you know, I'm sure many people would also be thinking that, well, something that I do myself can't be as good as what the doctor does. So lots of education is involved. First of all, we have to educate women that HPV test is superior to pap smears. Mm -hmm. I'm not putting down pap smears, which has historically helped lots of women, um, uh, that say, saying that it's, it's bad. But for pap smears to work, you really need to have it done 
every year to every three years. Mm. This once in your lifetime after having a baby isn't sufficient. Whereas HPV tests can be effective just with as few as two times, twice in your lifetime. So the, the education that HPV test is a screening test, it's not a screening for a sexually transmitted disease, it's an important concept to get mm-hmm. into the public. Then to bring the test to the community and to ensure that we follow up women who have negative and positive screens and to answer all their queries is also an important. So program ROSE essentially is not just a test. Mm-hmm. It's an all-package uh, screening program that ensures that women understand, can perform their own test, and most importantly, will be linked to care if they have a positive screening test. So the majority of our work, Suen, in the Rose Foundation is to really focus on the 6% of women mm-hmm. with a positive screening test to engage with them with, through our call and navigation centre, explaining what that test means and sending them a referral letter and sending their doctors a referral letter and ensuring that they link up to care. Mm. That, that is an important aspect of program roles. Mm. Because, you know, in all our conversations here on the show on accessibility of healthcare services, it's not just about getting diagnosed, it's about then how do you link up that person to treatment? How do you ensure that there are no other invisible factors that affect their ability to access healthcare services? And it's very much what you said, Prof, right? It's looking at it as a whole, making sure that no woman is left behind throughout the whole process. What, like a very simple thing. One of the biggest hurdles of getting to a tertiary hospital, particularly in uh, one of the um, university or ministry of health hospitals, is that what is the phone number? How, how do you get to a clinic, right? It's mm-hmm. as simple as that. And bridging that is an important thing. So Rose Foundation gets you the doctor whom you have to see and writes the letter where you have a copy, the doctor has a copy, and the appointment is made and scheduled for mm. you. Um, and it, we tell you where to go. It, it's nearly um, a step-by-step process of getting to care, which we do lack, particularly for those who are not familiar with hospitals. Mm. You, you mentioned about how the this test, this HPV testing, is, is better than the pap smear. Why is that? Okay, that's a, that, thank you for this opportunity to explain to our li- listeners, right? So, cervical cancer is now causally associated with human papilloma virus infection of the high-risk types. Mm-hmm. So, we now know science has really done the work to say that you, you do need this 14 high-risk HPVs in order for a woman to develop cervical cancer over a period of 10 to 15 years. Of course, there are the, the unique situation where there are women who do not have such a robust immune system. But for most of us who have a good immune system, it takes about 10 to 15 years from getting, acquiring the high-risk HPV, not clearing it and, and persisting in our bodies for 15 years before cancer develops. And that's a maybe. So if you do not have HPV virus, Mm -hmm. the high-risk HPV virus detected, 
you can be certain that you're protected for the next 10 to 15 years. And hence, it is a good marker of risk in the next decade for a woman. Mm. Whereas for the pap smear, it doesn't have that sensitivity and you're looking for abnormal cells. For HPV tests, you're looking at the causal agent that will take a long, long time. But I also need to let our listeners know that HPV infection is very common. Mm -hmm. So if a woman is diagnosed as being HPV positive, most likely than not, they do not have cancer. And what they need to do is to go to a doctor for follow-up to have a check of the cervix to see whether it's an infection or whether the infection has led to changes on the cervical skin. Mm. So it's just a matter of confirming whether there is something to worry about or there's not something to worry about. I mean, a positive HPV test in itself is not confirmatory. Most of the time, it's not confirmatory. The woman does not have cancer. But what it tells us is that it it asks asks this question, um, is this person at risk or not? Mm. Or has the virus made some changes to the cervix? And so for, for someone with a positive test, they just need to go to their doctor for a proper inspection. So why have we not adopted the, this test more widely, Prof? What has been the barrier? Because, I mean, you're talking about it being more easy because women can test it themselves. Um, it's much less um, frightening, if I could say, than a pap smear. So why have we not this done this more widely? I, I think overall is the knowledge that this has happened and also um, the education, not just of the women, but of the doctors themselves. It Mm -hmm. is something very new. Um, And you need to be familiar with molecular testing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I can say this, doctors are very uh, resistant to change at times. (laughs) You know, we've been brought up by following this protocol and following this guideline. And the change in HPV screening has really happened in the last 10 years. And when we wanted to move to HPV screening, there's the issue of stigma. You know, our textbooks, unfortunately, still um, present uh, traditional epidemiological risk factors of multiple sexual partners and early debut of um, sexual activity. All the negative social connotation is still associated with HPV, which should not be the case. Because today we know that HPV is an, a common infection among mm-hmm. men and women. So it's whether we can clear it or not. So first answer is knowledge and education among healthcare professionals themselves and the general public. Second is the capacity to do uh, molecular testing, which fortunately is a silver lining of the COVID pandemic We have our labs and our capacity in the country to perform molecular testing has expanded over the last three years. To do HPV testing, you need good machines that can do rapid PCR Mm. through automation over a short period of time. So the machines which we acquired for COVID testing over the last five years can now be sort of changed to machines that do HPV testing. And we now have laboratory technicians and um, microbiologists who are familiar now Mm -hmm. with molecular testing. 
And it's so easy now to talk to women about swaps and PCR. <laughs> it's familiar five language. Years ago, you, 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 five years ago, you talked to women about swaps and PCR. You know, we, we don't know much about it. But now we say it's like a COVID test. Uh, you use a swap. Um, but it's just a different type of PCR. So the conversations and the capacity to do this is now available. And there is an urgency for us uh, as uh, healthcare professionals to adopt it. And the other thing I need to highlight is also um, the reimbursement and how insurance mm -hmm. works. At the moment, most of our insurance still um, do not incentivize screening using HPV tests. Mm. In fact, unfortunately, um, it's still classified as a sexually transmitted disease by many insurers. And they really need to change this um, so that women can be reimbursed or incentivized for screening rather than penalized for having a test which is then positive. So lots of sectors need to change to make this possible. Mm. You know, I'm glad to hear that the pandemic has had some silver linings in making the job easier. Um, how far has the program come in the past four years since you started in 2019? You know, what have there been any major milestones in the process? I know you've worked with um, MPs as well to expand on the program. Um, tell me more about what has been achieved in the past four years. So as a little foundation that has grown during the pandemic times, we've done more than 20,000 screens. And as a not-for-profit, not, not for uh, we depend very much on um, donations. We, we are tax-exempt. Mm -hmm. So our, our biggest um, sponsor at the moment or supporter or collaborator is Etica. And they've been partnering us for the last three years. So we, we hope to engage with more such partners so that we can expand. So our rate limiting step is actually resources to expand the program to more B40. Mm. Um, it, it's really given to the B40 for free. So I always joke, you know, my, my, my third job is to be a professional beggar. So I get the resources and then later on, I have to persuade the women to have the test. So, so it is, it, it, it is something I desire for our, our community to get screened. And our focus is really on the women who don't access screening um, often. Mm. You know, recently in the, the, the budget, um, in Budget 2023 that was tabled, you know, when I duck into the document, that was mention of, a, of undertaking a pilot project um, with Program Rose. This was similar to what was um, tabled in the initial budget in last year. I guess, are you hopeful that that's a sign of your program expanding further across the country? Very hopeful. We, we want to work with different states, different communities, and Program Rose is really uh, about relationships with the community and therefore we need to work with partners who have that relationship with their women. So we've worked with um, MPs, we've worked with churches, mosques um, and different types of religious bodies because we can't go into any community cold mm -hmm. because there must be trust. That's why we are open to working with anyone who have um, access to women who needs to be screened. Hmm. 
If I take a step back to look at the bigger picture of cervical cancer, right, what challenges have you seen or come across in tackling a women's health issue in what many would see as a low-resource setting here in Malaysia? Right? I mean, we, we hear that our public healthcare system is underfunded. How has that impacted the work that you and your team does in um, whether it's diagnosing, screening for cervical cancer or even treating it? Suena, so, I think you've you've known this when you do with, uh, deal with other programs. The issue of working in silos is still a major issue in our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And I believe that if we tackle the issue of cervical cancer, I'm hopeful that it's not just cervical cancer. If we strengthen the process for cervical cancer prevention and treatment, we would strengthen the entire system to support other cancers as well. So, for example, in program roles, we look at community empowerment. That is useful, not just for cervical cancer. It's relevant for breast cancer. It's relevant for other non-communicable diseases. When we look at linkage of care, of how we guide women to hospitals, then we, we also strengthen the system for all other diseases as well. And what has come out very clearly through the pandemic is Mm -hmm. that there are many, many care or services that we traditionally offer Mm -hmm. in hospitals and healthcare facility that can be decentralized to the community, use the, the, the strong GP workforce that we have so that we can declutter tertiary hospitals. So I, I think through looking at cervical screening, we are actually taking into account the entire uh, healthcare infrastructure that can be strengthened so that we can face other pandemics that are to come and to ensure that preventive care can take, um, take place and be prioritised in a manner that does not require a greater healthcare workforce. Mm. <clears throat> it's about using what we have as well, right? I think the G- the point you made about um, leveraging on our community of GPs is and it's one that I've heard many other healthcare workers mention because we don't we don't always treat them as the first line of defense when it comes to healthcare services. We go straight to a hospital to a specialist because of the healthcare system that we're used to. Correct. I think we still have met, we have lots of room for increasing our efficiency without necessarily increasing the cost of funding. Mm-hmm. We, we can do better. I really think we can do better. Hmm. What have been some of your defining moments as a clinician, but also as a scientist, right? Especially in your work um, in cervical cancer. I think I've learned the value of communication. Data-driven science is very hard to be communicated to funders, to policymakers, and very much so when, when I'm looking at you know, statistics and graphs and policies, uh, modeling, how do you transmit that information to people who will give you the cash? You know, when you talk to the Ministry of Finance, what language do you use knowing that they have so many other priorities? So I think the ability to communicate science to different populations, to the IT crowd, to the finances, needs to be refined. And the other lesson I've learned is that as medical students and as trainees, 
we've always been taught to memorize guidelines. Mm. And many of these guidelines are developed in high resource settings. And I used to attend conferences and think, I can't do this in Malaysia. And um, it, it's impossible. I don't have the resources. I don't have a pathologist sitting in my operating theater to do all these fancy things. So to have the courage then to come out and say, right, how do I make a difference in my setting with the resources that I have? And it doesn't necessarily mean all the time that you need money. Mm. It is very important. <laughs> it doesn't need to start from there. Mm. I mean, so, guidelines are that, right? Guidelines. Um, you have to look at whether they fit in the environment that you're working in. Environment and the individual. So that that's so critical. So that's why... Um, I think we need to inject lots of empathy, lots of compassion besides applying guidelines in how we look after patients. What would be your message to young healthcare workers out there then, you know, who are keen on doing something similar, on doing more to make um, healthcare services more accessible? I, I would say look at the overall reason first. Always ask the why first. I think that's very important. Why do you want to do this? And what do you want to achieve? Many of us think that we aren't able to initiate change. And I think taking that first step is always important. The second thing is always be humble enough to ask people around us. I, I've never been refused when I ask for help. Um, if I ask for, yes, I've been refused when I ask for money, but never for expertise to help. And Program Rose, I always say, is a Malaysian success story because it was built up by Malaysians who believed in the vision. I have seen so many individuals who've, who've given of their time and their expertise running around the country trying to put together teams of individuals who want to make this vision a reality. I can tell you this, you know, many of uh, a lot of the work that we do now come from my classmates in, in my days of MGS. I've brought them all together. Hey, what can you contribute? What can you contribute? And they've given their time. They are project management people. They mm -hmm. are IT people um, who, who have come in to give their time freely. And if I were to monetize that, it's going to be very expensive. But these are Malaysians who believe in the vision. Mm. And, and that's why I, I'm so proud of this. Pro Malaysia should be proud of this program because it was not the result of one individual. It was a coming together of many individuals who believed in the vision. Mm. And so in that vision of elimination of cervical cancer, are we on the way there, you know, or is there still a long way to go for Malaysia? I hope we can accelerate the steps. I think we have what it takes. I think everyone needs a little bit of nudge to move towards there. So in whether it's professional societies, whether it's the next budget, I think if we all add in a little bit more, we will make this a reality. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Prof. Thank you, Suan. 
I've been speaking to Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, Consultant Gynecological Oncologist at University Malaya Medical Centre and also the founder of Rose Foundation for this International Women's Day special. Now, this show has been made possible by BMW. Drive home the fully electric BMW iX from only 3,999 ringgit a month. Visit a BMW showroom or make a booking now at shop.bmw.com.my. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Health on Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.